Hi, I'm Christine. And I'm Alan. We'd like to thank you for tuning in to our discussion this week. Our hope is that we'll share some information that you will find helpful. So now we invite you to join us as we together listen listen for for the the word. word. Hi, everybody, and welcome to our podcast today. Today, um, as we've been following along in Mark, we're hitting the end of Jesus's public ministry. So I'm going to have Alan take this away. We are in Mark 10, verses 46 through 52. Thanks, Christy. Yeah, our gospel lesson for this week is really uh, fairly significant in in the overall flow of Mark's gospel. Um, Immediately following this story of the healing of Bartimaeus, uh, Mark recounts Jesus' triumphal entry to Jerusalem, which may be taken as the beginning of the Passion Mm -hmm. narrative. I think we've talked about this before, that there is some disagreement over precisely where the Passion narrative begins, but this is one possible beginning for it. And, you know, I think... We might have a tendency to overlook this passage and think, uh, you know, I'm just going to preach on a, something else. I'm going to skip this one. Interestingly enough, Alan, on that thought, when I was kind of researching commentaries and things on it, it's, it is skipped a lot yeah. in, the, in the Reformation period. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, w- and we might still be tempted to skip it, but I think it's important to note that, that, that there are two healings of blind men that bracket this middle section of Mark's gospel where Jesus is primarily instructing his followers about the meaning of discipleship. And the first one was the healing of the man uh, at Bethsaida, who, uh, you know, the healing didn't quite take the first time. Right, that's right. And, and, uh, you know, the placement of these episodes in Mark's gospel, many have seen this as thematic. And so the first one where the healing didn't quite take suggests that the disciples, like the man being healed at first see, but not clearly. Mm-hmm. Uh, and But then this episode suggests that unlike Bartimaeus, the disciples have not yet been healed of their blindness because they continue to fail to grasp the ways in which the suffering service of Jesus is to be a model for their own way mm-hmm. of life. And so um, it, it would seem really that Bartimaeus is held up as the model for how to respond to Jesus in contrast yeah. to the 12, the 12 and i think about i have all these all these resonances about the ground we've been over i think about john saying master we saw this guy you know casting out demons in your name and he wasn't one of us so we tried to prevent him here mark seems to intentionally bring out this this some person who was not one of the 12 right and he clearly um, represents the example of um the way that one is right. supposed to respond to Jesus. And if we think that what that's stretching it a bit much, I think we should remember that the, the theme of metaphorical blindness was already introduced in the statement about parables way back in chapter 4, right. verses 11 and 12. So the, this, is, this is a theme in Mark's mm-hmm. gospel, and I think we should see the, the placement of these stories as being significant. Awesome. Okay, so... Set us up. What, how does this begin? Well, one of the things we find about this particular story is I think it's fair to say that the synoptic tr- tradition was a bit confused yeah. about this episode. Yeah. <laughs> and, and really the confusion begins with the first words of Mark's account. They came to Jericho. Mm-hmm. Now, both Matthew and Mark agree that this episode of the healing of the blind man took place when Jesus was leaving Jericho. Mm-hmm. But Luke says it took place while he was was entering Jericho. Uh, 
Mm-hmm. Uh, furthermore, Mark and Luke speak of one blind man, and while Matthew, Matthew says mm-hmm. there were two. And finally, Matthew not only recounts this episode in this context with two blind men, but he also recounts an a very similar episode earlier in Jesus' ministry with another two blind men. Uh, And, you know, obviously the earlier episode in Matthew could represent a separate healing miracle, but there is a great deal of overlap with this episode. And um, it's not entirely clear Mm -hmm. what we're meant to do with this. And, but I think it's interesting that this situation gives a glimpse of the process by which the oral tradition was developed. It was a reliable uh, process, but it wasn't perfect. perfect. And so you've got some of these little seams and gaps that you find um, in the gospels. And these types of issues were things that even the reformers who are trying to make sense of this are dealing with as well. So I think that's, you know, and then it's obviously in a tradition today. I do think, and just on a personal level, it's pretty cool, actually, that this is in all three Gospels. And mm-hmm. I think that yes, there indeed. tells us the significance of the story. Yes, indeed. Mm-hmm. And both of these, both of these healing miracles right, are both in all of them. three right, Gospels. Right, right. Yeah, yeah. So Mark continues, as he and his disciples and a large crowd were leaving Jericho, Bartimaeus, son of Timaeus, a blind beggar, was sitting by the roadside. That's uh, Mark 10, 46. Mm-hmm. Now, while Luke's account of this event is is closer to Mark's than Matthew's. Yes, I noticed that, yeah. Only Mark tells us that the blind man was Bartimaeus, son of Timaeus. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I think we probably have already seen that it's kind of rare in the Gospels that a person who benefits from Jesus' ministry is named. It is. This is kind of cool, yeah. Uh, Unfortunately, a lot of people have tried to come up with various figurative interpretations of the name to try to explain that, but I think it seems most likely to me that Bartimaeus was named because he was known to those who contributed to the tradition behind Mark's Gospel. Totally on board with that. Yeah, Yeah, that makes sense. And when he's right to an audience, this audience would have recognized this name and known this story. Yeah, mm-hmm. the, the, apparently, apparently, this was a person who was known to the early church. Whether he was actually known to the church in Rome, we don't know, but he was known to the early church, right. and he was known to the to the people who were putting the gospel tradition mm-hmm. together. Uh-huh. Yeah. So um, now, while Matthew and Luke mentioned that he or they uh, was blind, only Mark says that he was a beggar uses a word prosites, which is only used here and in John 9, 8. So mm-hmm. it's an unusual word in the mm-hmm. New Testament. But I think we could say that it was very likely implied by the situation that he was sitting by the roadside, which all three Gospels right, do mention. Right. Yeah. So um, how, how does it this play out now what what happens in the in the narrative well i think it's interesting that mark tells us that when he heard that it was jesus of nazareth he began to shout and say jesus son of david have mercy on him i think it seems clear that bartimaeus must have heard about jesus since he calls jesus son of david yes and later in the passage he'll also call him rabuni Mm -hmm. or my teacher and what comes to mind immediately is Mary when you say that. Well, hang on to that. Okay. We'll come back to it. Okay. You know, these terms may seem at first glance to be fairly conventional, son of David and rabbi. But I think we're meant to understand that although, again, although this man is blind, he has insight into who Jesus was in great contrast to Jesus' own disciples, the 12. Yeah. I, you know, you pick up on that. This guy's blind and he knows who he is. Mm-hmm. Very interesting. Yeah. 
Now, the cry, have mercy on me, is only found here in Mark's gospel, and that may be, again, connected with the fact that this episode is is meant to be significant in the flow of Mark's mm. gospel. It, it constitutes a kind of conclusion to Jesus' public ministry. It is found elsewhere in the other gospels. What is significant, I would say, is that the phrase in the Greek, eliason me, is found literally all over over the Septuagint version of the Psalms. Hmm. I mean, if you did just a word search on it with your with a concordance or with your your software, you would find just like literally it's all over the Psalm, the Septuagint oh, version of the Psalms. Interesting. And I think this may contribute to the fact that we're meant to understand that this man is demonstrating faith in Jesus because this is the language of the faithful mm-hmm. crying out to God for help. Oh, very, that's a very interesting, and those would have been a, a word combination. It would have been very familiar. There would have been, mm-hmm. uh, people would have resonated with that, yeah. with that language. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Okay. And so tell us more about, about the story and how it's crafted. Yeah, we, I think we see something about, uh, something of Mark's um, storytelling craft in that the details of the narrative build tension. We've seen this before in Healing Miracles, mm-hmm. and we see it again here. Although Bartimaeus calls out to Jesus in a way that is similar to others, how others have approached him for help, Mark tells us that many sternly ordered him to be quiet. And, you know, we might wonder, who were these many? Were they the disciples? Were they the large crowd? Were they some of both? It's hard to say. Literally, Mark says they rebuked him to be silent. But like others who faced obstacles when they sought out Jesus, Bartimaeus would not be rebuked, and he would not be silenced. And so Mark tells us that he cried out even more loudly, Son of David, have mercy on me. And we've seen this before, um, especially with the woman who had the hemorrhage. You know, the persistence of those who approached Jesus for help in Mark's gospel constituted the faith that Jesus commended. And I find it interesting that for all the variation in this episode, all three synoptic gospels include this dynamic of the of people trying to prevent him or trying to shush yeah, him, yep. and he won't be silenced, and he, he continues to persevere in mm-hmm. seeking out Jesus. And so again, I think we see in this same episode, we see the, 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 the flexibility, perhaps, we see the variation in the, the oral tradition, but we also see the, the stability of the oral tradition mm-hmm. here. Um, in that, you know, all three synoptic gospels recount this, these details of the episode. Okay, moving on. How does Jesus respond to this? Well, Mark tells us that Bartimaeus' cries caught Jesus' attention so that he stood still and said, call him here. Now, this is something that's, that's interesting because the, the language that Jesus uses for call him here is also a bit unusual particularly in Mark's gospel. This is the only place where you find this in Mark's Mm -hmm. gospel. And a lot of people have tried to point out that some of the details of this passage correspond to a call narrative, like for a call narrative Mm -hmm. of a prophet in the Old Testament. And, and, uh, you know, the language here is unusual. And this is one of those details that might suggest, you know, that we're meant to read this, this interaction with Bartimaeus as Jesus calling him to discipleship. So they, again, perhaps the disciples, perhaps the crowd, called the blind man, saying to him, take heart, get up, he is calling you. And as a result, Mark says that Bartimaeus threw off his cloak, and he sprang up and came to Jesus. And again, these details Mm -hmm. are found only in Mark's gospel, and the word anapedao, jump up, only occurs here in the New Testament. Interesting. 
So um, again, what does Jesus ask them once he gets up? Yeah, so Jesus asks Bartimaeus, what do you want me to do for you? And again, there's some variation of this uh, question is, is in all three Gospels. In response, Mark tells us that he says, my teacher, let me see again. Now, um, while Bartimaeus addresses Jesus as Rabuni or mm-hmm. my teacher here in Mark, both Matthew and Luke report that he or they in Matthew call Jesus Lord, mm-hmm. Curie. Now, while Lord as a form of address seems to make the man's faith more obvious, right. I think it's important to note that the term Rabuni is an intimate one. And as you mentioned, the only other place where someone addresses Jesus as Rabuni in the whole gospel tradition is when Mary mm-hmm. uses this phrase when she recognizes the risen Christ in the garden. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and actually, um, a New Testament scholar named Paul Ochtemeyer says that the, this term Rabuni re- belongs to the language of discipleship. So in, in, Interesting. Yeah. Interesting. The, the fact that, so, so while Lord might be something we might expect in the gospel tradition, Rabuni is a very intimate word that implies a significant faith on the part of Bartimaeus. And I mean, if you think about putting Bartimaeus on the level with Mary, I mean, right. that's huge. right. Um, yeah, and I think that's a I think that's a a significant piece of this passage that is just brushed over. Oh, we just kind of ignore it. It's well, it's not obvious from the English, right? You don't right. if and if you do not have time to get into the Greek, and you don't have a really really good aid, you're gonna miss it. Yeah, well, and, and all uh, you really need is a good concordance, a good Greek concordance that can show but you. But it requires you to get out, right. uh, get out of the English. And you know, even uh, I, I don't know. I mean, even with the English, I think Rabuni, you know, should be in there. Right? Yeah, yeah, Rabuni. Clear, sh- you should clearly. be able to search for Rabuni and be able to see that it's only used these two times. Otherwise, right. it's Rabbi. Right, right. I picked up on it right away, but um, again, I do think it still would be easy to jump over and mm. really not identify it well and not to see this as 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 you know this implies a significant faith on this man's part a faith in jesus Mm -hmm, on this mm -hmm. man's part and and he's sort of put on the same level with mary and so if we we think of it in those terms you know this is not just some you know so-and-so beggar you know he's named but he also he clearly has a a a faith in jesus that we're going to see is goes beyond that of the 12. Yeah, and, and and this begs a whole question in my mind. You know, so often, at least in the church tradition, the 12 are elevated, mm-hmm. and yet there are other figures that are mm-hmm. also elevated that are kind of just brushed well, and off. and we've seen tradition. them in Mark's gospel. You know, mm-hmm. the woman with the hemorrhages. Exactly. She, she is held up as an example for faith. Exactly. To the synagogue leader, Jairus, whose mm-hmm. name we know. We don't know her name. We know the synagogue leader. Right. Right, and here again, Bartimaeus is a blind beggar, and he is held up as an example of faith. Right. In contrast with you know the ways in which you know the disciples, you know, there's another, there's another, uh, I, you know, you think about the other request that Jesus has received recently from from James and John about places exactly. in the kingdom, right? And here, here Jesus says, "What do you want me to do for you?" And he says, "My teacher, let me see again." Mm-hmm. And, you know, if we think of blindness here as being not just physical, but also right. spiritual, yeah. you know, he's, you know, he's, th- this, this takes on an even deeper kind of significance. Right. right. And so, yeah, it's, it's, it's a big deal here. Yeah, it is. So how does Jesus respond to Bart- Bartimaeus? Jesus basically says to Bartimaeus, go, your faith 
has made you well. We've seen this before. <laughs> yes, we have in connection with the healing of the woman with the hemorrhage. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's, um, hey, pistis su sesso can say, your faith, and I've mentioned, I mentioned back at that point, I think, that, you know, the verb sozo commonly refers to salvation, but Jesus regularly used it in com- to commend the faith of those he had healed, which suggests a dual connotation. And I, you know, I suggest the translation, your faith has healed or saved you. And actually, I, we had, I think we had the discussion back then that you know you asked me how i would translate it and i can't if you know i said if push comes to shove i would say your faith has saved you Mm, okay really because i think i think Mm -hmm. and one of the one of the english translations i found that i liked is your faith has made you whole oh yeah i think that kind of has a nice uh um sort of um sort of a a possibility of taking it in more than one way right and this, and as you said before, this is more than just a physical ailment. This right. is a beyond that. And, and Calvin picks up on this too. Yes, yeah. yes. And I think I think it's important. Collins, in her commentary on Mark, notes that the members of the audience of Mark, who know the gospel as a whole, they probably would infer this second level of meaning relating to eternal life and the kingdom of mm, God. Okay. Yeah. yeah, that makes sense. <clears throat> yeah. Now. Um, one of the things I found is that only the New American Bible, which is uh, the revised edition of the New American Bible, which is the Catholic Bible, and N.T. Wright's New Testament for Everyone has oh, yeah. the translation, Your Faith Has Saved You. There are a number of them that say, Your Faith Has Made You Whole. The standard English translation that we have in the New International Version and the English Standard Version and the New RSV and many others is, Your Faith Has Made, made you, you Well. well. And they just, I don't really like that translation because it, you know, if all you have the is the English, you're, you're not aware that there's something more than physical that healing just is a physical on. healing implication yeah. where the other really has a much deeper yeah. i i do like that that's uh, significant to me i think your faith has made you whole would be a good translation um uh, as well as your faith has saved you mm-hmm. yeah mm-hmm. so what happens now what happens with this man mark tells us that immediately he regained his sight um, which is, you know, that's usually the case with Jesus' healing miracles. The cure is affected immediately. But what's unusual about this healing miracle is the, fa- the fact that despite Jesus said, go, we're told that he followed Jesus on the way. And the verb is akalutheo, which is the one that Jesus uses for calling yep. his disciples. So again, you've got the language of discipleship yes. here in this. And, and this is another of those details that people pick up on to say that this is, this, we should possibly see this as a kind of call narrative. Mm-hmm. Now, all three synoptic gospels report this as the outcome of the miracle. They all use the same language. Interesting. Yeah, and and so this is an important piece. Don't one mess with this. Yeah, it, it, it's unusual and perhaps even I would say unique. I don't know if this is the only place, but it is unique in the synoptic tradition because it's much more common for Jesus to send those he has restored yes. back to their home and their way. And we're left to wonder what makes the difference here. And I think, again, this is part of the reason why people see uh, what's going on here as something more than just what's on the surface, that the, that, that the story of Bartimaeus is meant for us to understand as an example for discipleship. Mm-hmm. I like that. And, and I think that's part of the answer, really. Part of the answer is found in the situation of Jesus' ministry. This is the final act yep, of his public that ministry. that makes sense, right. And it ends where he began, with those whom Jesus encountered following him. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, we, we had the call of some of the first disciples at the very beginning right. of Jesus' public ministry. But again, I think part of the answer is, is to be found in the situation of Mark's community, where it seems that Mark is holding up Bartimaeus as an example 
of what it what, what Christian discipleship means. Mm-hmm. And I think the implication, again, is that he understood even better than the 12 whom Jesus had particularly called, right? Right. Uh, who Jesus was. And he not only responded in faith, but he also followed Jesus on the way. Right. And in Mark's gospel, on the way means on the way to the cross. Yes. So yes. you take all of the details of this story together, and it seems fairly clear to me that, that Mark is presenting Bar- Bartimaeus as an ideal disciple in, con- in contrast with the 12. Yes. You know, the 12 still don't get the it. The 12 are clueless, right? Yeah. Yes, yes. Yeah, exactly. And and so what, we may be tempted to overlook this passage, but it really, I think, plays a significant role in the overall context of Mark's gospel. I agree, and I think it has a lot of... Um, I think it provides a really, really nice, um, a nice way to preach on this as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Now, since this is the final episode of Jesus' public ministry in Mark's gospel, this presents us with an opportunity to take a look at the miracles in Mark's gospel and in the synoptic tradition as a whole. And, you know, a lot of people these days want to approach it from a more um, rational standpoint or philosophical standpoint, you know, arguing for the plausibility or implausibility of that Jesus mm-hmm. being able to work miracles. I find it more helpful to approach the question from the perspective of the way the miracle stories function in the yeah. Gospels. And so when we, when we look at it from this perspective, we find three emphases, and these won't come as a surprise to us. Uh, the first one is that Jesus' healing miracles occur in response to the faith of those who seek yes. him. Yes, yes. And we saw, you know, in Mark 6, when Jesus was at Nazareth, Jesus could not work many miracles there because of their unbelief. Right. So the role of faith is key here. Um. And it's important to note that, on the other hand, the, the exorcisms and the nature miracles do not contain this emphasis, right? which makes sense, obviously, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Now, the second theme is that the miracles of Jesus serve as manifestations of the kingdom. Yep. And we've seen this many times already before. And, and it basically confirms Jesus' proclamation of, of the kingdom's presence in his ministry mm-hmm. and it confirms his authority to be able right, to right. to um, uh, do these miracles. And so that leads us to the third theme. Uh, the synoptic miracle stories call attention to Jesus and who he is as one who ministers with divine authority as yeah. he's called the son of man, but we know from the introduction and the conclusion of, of, of the crucifixion right. scene in Mark that he's, he's also the son of son God. Of God. Yeah. Yep. As yep. truly understood, the son of God. Yeah. Well, this these are particularly interesting because... I would argue that many of these concepts about the miracles really are initiated with the Reformation. Yeah. 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 So cool. we can talk about that a little bit. All right. Thanks, Christy. Thanks. Hi, friends. We're back. And as promised, Christy's going to talk to us a bit about uh, the role of miracles in the church of the medieval period and the Reformation. So, Christy, tell us about the, this. Sure. So, if we start today and, look, and consider the passage, we are obviously looking at something, a miracle of Jesus. And when you look at Calvin in particular and, and Luther and really the Reformers as a whole, they don't, they don't question these miracles of Jesus per se. I do want to point out, though, that he does recognize um, that this isn't just a, a healing of the body, but a healing of the whole of, of mm. the spirit, much like we talked about, that this isn't 
an entire healing. I mean, there's a spiritual component involved. Um, and I think Calvin is pretty forward-looking when we think about today and how many of us think of miracles today. Uh, and there's a lot of reasons for that. But so interesting when we look at the passage is the reflection of you know, Jesus' miracles. But what happens from there is how miracles as a whole were seen in the church. And the Reformation really is one of the big times when we start to look at miracles maybe a little differently um, and how they're and how they're and how they're um, understood and then how they continue on in the church or if you will say do not continue on in the right. church sure so Calvin sees it as kind of a there was this age of miracles as he says mm-hmm. and then uh, and that would include the disciples but then we are past that age of miracles. So we're really in a new age now. Not that things don't happen, but they in themselves can't aren't, aren't viewed as miracles, but really part of God's providence. Mm-hmm. Um, one one explanation was there was only one great miracle, um, and then that everything else is really just um, part of that that original miracle of creation and that working towards God's providence. So kind of an, a different understanding of miraculous events. But I want to take you back to the Middle Ages a little bit again, because you have to understand how this process of miracles started in the Middle Ages sure. to understand how the Reformers dealt with it. And of course, again, Roman Catholic Church and what was instituted by Christ, carried on by the disciples, continues to be carried on in their minds by those who are high up in the church. So miracles are a real thing in the church. What is interesting, the incidences of miracles and recorded miracles increases in our time right before the Reformation. (laughs) Now, why is that? (laughs) Well, part of that, I mean, part of that's just lay participation and how they understand faith. Um, But part of that's this pulling people to believe that miracles can be affected in their lives. And there's a lot of money involved in this Mm. um, because you have saints who are um, the miracle workers. Like you can't be a saint unless you indeed have a miracle attributed to you. Alan and I were talking about this earlier. So you have this cult of saints and you go to that saint and pray on your behalf that they will they will go to God, go to Jesus in your name, and a miracle will happen for you. And, um, of course, if the miracle happens, however that's interpreted, and it's recorded as such, that that gives credence to the success of that saint. And so, and thereby to the Roman Catholic and Church. And thereby to the church, right? <laughs> so it, it builds up. So you have um, rulers that are building these wonderful churches, Um and for for the saints that people will come and visit or the saints often the saints relics are housed there and in fact a lot of the medieval um architecture is designed for that mm. if you will so these big huge churches are built they're pilgrimage churches and of course as as things become more settled if you will in the late and high high middle ages and even late middle ages Pilgrimage becomes a regular thing for folks. And, and many of you are familiar with um, Canterbury Tales by Geoffrey Chaucer, which kind of depicts this thing, these people going on this sure. pilgrimage. And we sure. have the pilgrimage stories. Um, they were going actually to um, the Shrine of Thomas Becket in, in England. Right. Um, but 
they were all over, you know, Vezelay in um, northern Spain was, was a huge... Fatima. Probably the um, uh, pilgrimage church. But they're all scattered all over around mm-hmm. France and, and, and uh, Holy Roman Empire. And you go and... Lords, I believe, is one, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Just, I mean, and that's, yeah, I mean, like you say, I mean, there's shrines all over the world right. in the Catholic Church. Yeah. Exactly. So, you know, the, the, the various... Um, the various um, um, uh, relics of the saints and the reliquaries, which were often beautiful, right? Gold and bejeweled, and they would be, you know, displayed at these, and you could go around, and some of them are, you know, the best stuff you could get, a piece of the cross, a piece of Mary's cloak, you know, whatever, a, a fingernail. Some of them are kind of creepy, right? Mm-hmm. And and they would be displayed, and they would... The, these rulers would start to gain collections of them um, because it brought them a lot of notoriety. Um, it, it reflected their faithfulness. And um, well, my cynicism says it also brought them money. I I, that's what was my next statement. <laughs> it's also a big money maker, and these right. people come into the cities, and the people spend money there. Right. And well, so and they and they, and they donate money. They to donate the shrines. money to the shrines yeah. exactly. So. This is part of the, the the tradition, but interestingly enough, part of it then was to you know record these incidences. So, for example, and this is a little this is actually post Reformation, but just to give you an idea, um, post this is post Council of Trent. Um, Laurentius Surius, um, he's a Cartesian monk, and he published Proof of the Historical Saints in 1571. In this, he recorded eight thousand miraculous accounts through some 700 saints it's like it's like this is the ultimate vindication or legitimization of the catholic church in the face of the challenge of the reformation exactly and as if you want if you want to go to those guys over there go ahead if you want to come where the miracles are come to us exactly (laughs) and it seems to be as the as the reformers came to reject this these miraculous happenings the roman catholic church tended to claim even more Mm. so you've kind of got this and in fact it was a huge reason why people who may have come over to a reformation idea ended up swaying back to the roman catholic church because popular piety didn't move along as quickly as the more intellectual traditions of the reformers and Oddly enough, even though Luther would say, this is all ridiculous, they would still, there was a whole cult of Luther that emerged out of this. Oh, really? Yes, yes, yes. Um, wow. I have a friend who, who studies this, this kind of hagiography of Luther that comes out and, 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 and stuff attributed to miracle, uh, to Lutheran, and even there even becomes a tradition of um, the relics with associated with Luther, wow. just bizarre, and miracles as well, which is something that is opposed. The Luther would have been opposed to, but right. again, popular piety is behind, huh. um, far behind. They're still trapped in that in that idea of 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 miracles. I mean, and think about today. I think many people today. How many people still have? various myths that they believe in because they they're i i better i better baseball players are terrible i can't cut my beard until such and such i have to (laughs) can't wash my hair i mean whatever i have to have i have to do a certain ritual every time i come to the plate just the same exact way exactly exactly so this kind of uh, there's this kind of marriage if you will between um miracles and 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 um 
unexplainable happenings, right? Mm-hmm. This kind of mysticism that's involved that, that we see together. And um, there's lots of folks that have studied, probably Keith Thomas, Religion and the Decline of Magic. He really digs mm-hmm. into this in particular, um, this process by which as the Reformation comes out, you see a decline in magic, at least theoretically, and yet mm-hmm. the newer scholarship suggesting they weren't done. So, well, and, uh, you know, I mean, I've done some work in, in magic in the, in the ancient world, and, you know, it was just, I mean, that it was everywhere. People just, who, people believed in magic that, you know, uh, not only magic, but also astrology, and, you know, they believed that they had to do these things, and they had to, they had to supplicate the gods, you know. Exactly, and they, they had to, exactly. You know, because otherwise, you know, fate would would uh, come down on them and and uh, they would be left helpless in, in comparison with this cruel cold fate and uh, you know it's totally not surprising to me that you know uh, in antiquity when the Roman Catholic Church takes becomes the church right. you know they have this whole place for miracles that is a part of their exactly their, their space because it's that magical thinking that was just there exactly. from the beginning exactly and, and it's still around today it's still around today <laughs> yeah. you know how many people i'm gonna go see this shrine i'm i saw mary's tear whatever if they, mm-hmm. they out, out of the out of the sculpture anyway there's a lot yeah. of this it still is is part of the tradition um but um and obviously, it's it's during the Reformation, though, that that you get this this shift away from it. And Calvin, in particular, says, "Look, there's a lot of power for change, actually, within providence, but it only comes from Christ." Mm-hmm. So, Luther, Calvin, not you, through a saint, right? You get rid of the cult of the saints. You get rid of this obsession with ma- with magic. Um, I, I have a qu- a quote from one of our newer scholars um, on this. He says, "Providence still performs miracles, but no longer through the meditation of the individual saint, but through the advancement of the true church." Mm. Um, and uh, this is by uh, this is from um, a, a little study by Moshlevowski, Calvin Calvin's miracles and the concept of the miraculous. Mm. Nice. Um, so I like that quote, and I think that makes. Um, that makes a lot of sense. Um, yeah, it does. It does. Yeah. Uh, you know, j- this is just an aside, but, you know, I don't mind the saints' days as a way of reminding us that, you know, some of these people, whether they worked miracles right, or not, right. they were truly spiritual people. Right. And so you learn about them and how they dealt with their situations right. in their life. And it right. becomes a kind of encouragement, I right. think. And I, I think that history is one that we can, we can preserve even in, you know, the Protestant tradition. Absolutely. But, but you know, this whole cult of saints where you're, right. you're almost worshiping that's the saints different. and looking to right. them for miraculous cures. That's a very different that's thing. That's very yeah. different. And, and I, think, um, I think that's really important. We still can recognize saints of the church and mm-hmm. we could still recognize All Saints Day for people that are, are pious. I, I remember when I first started seminary and we sat down, one of my favorite professors said, called everyone in their saint. Mm. Oh my gosh. Did it kind of, it was kind of this call, but it was, and this kind of honor. And yet at the same time, there was so much gravity in the space. Mm-hmm. I was really taken aback by that, wow. but it was kind of beautiful at the same time. Sure. And I think, I think what he wanted us to be reminded of was the gravity of our call. Yeah. Both the joy and the gravity, and it was—it really did. Every time he said it, I was always took my breath away. Well, he's following cool. a good example. I mean, Paul used the word saints for believers. Yeah, yeah, it was pretty cool. Yeah. Um, so um, 
I want to. I, I want to go on just to one of the observations. I mean, one of the things about Calvin in particular. So you kind of see um, Luther, of course, being a more medieval guy than than Calvin. Mm-hmm. A little bit later, by the time Calvin comes around, you're also really seeing the um, scientific revolution take off. Mm-hmm. So reason is taking more and more of a role than it had ever before. And so you really do see, and eventually by the time we hit the Enlightenment, the reason's going to take over 100% from from the miracles. So you see, particularly in a tradition, less and less emphasis on anything that seems divine to the, to the, to, I said, once you hit the Enlightenment, where they think, gosh, we can understand everything in the world. And I don't want you to take Calvin that far because Calvin is not ever going to go that far. But I do think it, it is, a, is a pattern that you begin to see in the world. And how do you reconcile, um, how do you reconcile reason and mm-hmm. science with the church? And it's still something we deal with today. Um, and I, I started to think about the Reformation. I was thinking about Theodore Robb, who in 1976, I know this is really old, but yet he was one of the first ones to really look at the Reformation era and what comes right after as um, a time of instability. And he wrote uh, a book called The Struggle for Stability in Early Modern Europe, um, which is one of those really, really important studies as he is looking at, look, we have a major change, a fun, a paradigmatic shift from this medieval world that came before to this modern world that's happening now. And because of it, there's so, people are, they don't understand what is going on. They're just always this sense of discontent that's going on. This There's an under, under, girding fear, I think, mm-hmm. uh, of folks. Yeah, and I was going to say insecurity. The insecurity. And I think this is why particularly simple folks are jumping on, I'm comfortable with the miracles. Just let me go back there. Let me assume that someone can do something for me mm-hmm. and pray for me and, and make this change happen. And I think there's why they're drawn. And I think there's this huge polarization. On the other hand, there's this, eventually, by the time you hit the enlightenment, this kind of we're not going to buy any of that. We, you know, kind of start on patterns of, of, of thinking away the church, and and we get deism, and we get, and so you've got. Well, even within the church, you've got some New Testament scholars in the early Enlightenment phase who are coming up with rationalistic explanations exactly. of Jesus' miracles. Exactly. Yeah. So you get this polarization that happens, and I guess I keep thinking of right now, and I think. Part of what we see right now is another another round of a new paradigmatic shift. You know, it's those are slow, and when you're in the middle of one, it's hard to sure. identify when it starts. But you know, I I've been teaching my classes for a long time that we're in the postmodern world, and mm-hmm. I, most scholars agree with that. We they disagree is when it starts, or is it the computer age, or is it um, you know, and how is that age, information yeah. age? What what is it? But as we watch things, you know, are we starting to see? The decline of the nation state, you know, and, and, mm-hmm. and people, there might be some pushback to that, but yet Bitcoin. Uh, I mean, uh, here we see the rise of nationalism. So what know? do we see? Hyper-nationalism. Like, <laughs> right. we've got to hang on to what we have mm-hmm. because something like Bitcoin is a great threat. Or, to national currencies. Yeah, yeah, or Thomas Friedman, you know, the world is flat, that we could communicate with folks all over. Our Google Translate takes away mm-hmm. the, the limitations of starting to. I mean, we're not there yet, right. but, you, but we're kind of in the middle, and what does it do? It, it causes fear, and it causes people to polarize. And I think... Um, so I guess I think in the church, 
how does that impact people? And what are, what am I seeing? An increase of kind of falling back to um, miracles, right. you know, uh, or or other. Well, doctrine. I think people take comfort in that which seems cut cut and dried, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so, if you can rely on God or a saint to give you a miracle, if you ask the right way, then that provides you with your sort of. Um, uh, security blanket. Yeah, it's a security blanket a and, little bit. And and um, and you don't have to fear a world that is becoming ever more uh, complex. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, you know, it's it's getting bigger, but it's also getting smaller in a way. Mm-hmm. And you know, you know, we're we're used to a, a lot of people are used to a world being one way, and it's totally changing. Exactly. And, um, exactly. You know, yeah, I, I see that. I mean, you know, the the draw of of what seems safe. What you know, we're willing to give up our rights for just, security. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> right? So safety. what? Yeah. What? It, and what a shift. You know. And, and I think that's part of what we're dealing with at the modern church mm-hmm. today, really, honestly. But um, I agree. You know, again, and finishing my portion, going back to that time, this. Of all the things that this threatened, this cold of the saints, that was scary for lay people. Mm-hmm. And um, I think that's why you see this really strange kind of emergence of of, of, of lay culture, particularly folks that um, were maybe rural, you know. And uh, it is one of the things that Luther and Calvin, and they all fought against as they were trying to implement reform. So Yeah. 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 Well, and that, I, that challenge continues today, I mean, with with... And to me, I think of it as as responsible biblical interpretation, responsible theological reflection, versus almost a kind of superstitious, yep. um, yes, you know, faith, if you will. You know? I agree, and and it's still around. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, we'll be back. Thanks, Christy. Thanks. Hi, friends. We're back, and we've been over a lot of territory from the New Testament all the way into the modern world and postmodern world. And um, we thought we might talk about, um, you know, that there is a seems to be a very strong contrast drawn between Bartimaeus and the Twelve. And it seems to be intentional on Mark's count. Mm-hmm. And, and it seems to have some implications for discipleship and what is the nature of faith. So I'm going to let Christy um, share some reflections she has on that. Sure. Well, I was thinking about just the church as a whole and, and really how we do look at the, at the Twelve um, we tend to elevate the 12 today. and They I, are I, the apostles. They are the apostles. And yet I think in the true call of Jesus to be humble um, and that our space for them probably should also be one of humility. And I think what's really cool is the way we see with Bartimaeus in particular in this passage being raised up to this ideal form of discipleship. Yeah. But he's not alone. And there's other people that right. would have been left outside um, and I always, you know, I always jump on to women right. that are brought up that are, perf- are examples of disciples. And um, so I just, I guess I'm, I guess I'm thinking of, you know, my college students saying the disciples who don't get it. And I think it's just a, a very, I think, I think they're very human, I guess. And I think this is drawing out their humanity and there's the space for everybody. Yeah. And sometimes the, the, the children, 
the Bartimaeus are the people that actually get it. Right. Well, I mean, and we've seen that throughout Mark's gospel, Mm -hmm. but it's so easy to overlook because we're so focused on the 12. In Mark's gospel particularly, the Mm -hmm. 12 it's it, they're presented as clueless mm-hmm. even more than that hard-hearted mm-hmm. right mm-hmm. which is a serious rebuke uh, but the the people who are are the exemplars for faith are people like this unknown woman with a hemorrhage right right or a father who um, comes to Jesus for help with his tormented son mm-hmm. or uh, the Syrophoenician woman who, who you know, is put off initially exactly. and she persists in seeking help for her daughter. Um, uh, you know, all these people had to overcome obstacles. And Bartimaeus, he's a blind man. You know, he's, he's you know, Mark is the only one that says it out loud. He's a beggar, which means he is impoverished. Right. You know, he is he is at the bottom of society. He has no status whatsoever. Right. And he becomes the final ideal for what it means, mm-hmm. the final exemplar mm-hmm. for what it means to follow Jesus. Yeah. You know, and I think that's intentional in Mark's gospel, oh, and we miss that. I think we miss it too. And I and and as again, I always try to go back and look at Mark and think about, you know, how Mark is bringing us along. So we decide whether we we believe that Jesus is the Messiah. And I think this, I think it's very intentional on part of the the author here because I think he's like, look, oh these these twelve who we have raised up so high that are untouchable and in a tradition are untouchable. And then we realize they're very, very human. Sure. They really are thinking about human things, but look at all these other people who in our minds would never, ever have a shot. Right. Um, and it reminds us about the humility and the lowly and the call out, um, to all of humanity, really. Sure. Well, a couple of things come to mind, you know, um, you know, I think about the, the first shall be last and the last shall be first. Yes. Well, here we have this, it's like it's woven into the very narrative structure yep. of Mark's gospel that the first literally are shown to be last and the last literally are shown to be first yeah. in the narrative structure of Mark's gospel. But the other part I think about is, you know, the way Mark just openly displays the apostles who were right. like the pillars of the church already, even in Mark's day when he was writing his gospel for the church, you know. Um, and according to church tradition, Peter, uh, Mark's source is Peter. The, the right. church tradition about Mark's right. gospel was that he recorded the preaching of Peter. Yeah. <laughs> so how how ironic would that be if Peter himself was the one who it was, was saying, "Look, we we were the twelve, but we, we missed we it. Missed it. And there were all these other people that 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 were so easily overlooked, and they got it. But that would be so perfect, wouldn't it? You know, when you think about it, because then it's it's kind of like maybe the church missed it, but the disciples didn't. Mm-hmm. And I think there is something beautiful, though, about this 12, 11, ultimately, that despite not getting it, they keep following him. Yes, they're indeed. compelled to follow Jesus. They don't just drop away, but they're like, we're here. They say a lot of the wrong things. They're clueless, but they're still following. They continue to follow. Mm-hmm. And you see perseverance in that as well. Exactly. You do. Yeah. You do. And I think, 
I, I see this particularly with, with folks that are in a born-again situation mm-hmm. where they're called to God and they have this wonderful experience and then they fall off the bandwagon mm-hmm. yeah. and then they think, I've well, I can't be there anymore. Times. Right, yeah. instead of the disciples keep following. Mm-hmm. You know, right. keep following, you get back on. Right. And um, they stumble, you, you, you keep following. Right. You know, Peter denies Jesus. You keep following. Right, right, right. I, you know, at our church, I think a lot about, I'll see folks, I call, I call all of my members once a year on a birthday. So it's a big undertaking. There's 780 of them. So it's a lot of people I call. But what's really, really interesting um, as I call these folks is some of them were very active in the church. You know, I brought my kids up in the church and then they've fallen away. And sometimes mm-hmm. I'll call and I'll get the, I haven't attended church for a long time and there's a guilt or some will say, I'm really trying to re-engage. And, um, it's that interesting how, you know, getting them to re-engage, encouraging them to re-engage. Um, surely. Well, yeah. and you, I mean, anytime you, if you, if you're somebody who hasn't been to church for a while and you receive a call from a pastor, you have a fee, they, they feel like they need to explain why they haven't mm, been to church. They do. Yeah. They do. <laughs> exactly. You know, and I mean, as we're thinking about all of this, one of the things that I think about is, you know, when you you were talking about the postmodern era and and some of the reactions that it has provoked among people, and I think one of the things it has provoked is this quest for certitude. Mm, you know, yes. people are just flocking to these churches that promote this very simplistic theology that makes it clear that you're on the inside, they're on the outside, mm-hmm. you know, and it's sort of a, it's a clear cut distinction. And, and all that does is reinforce the boundaries and the dividing lines mm-hmm. that we like to that we already have right. in our, right. in our humanity. And it just reinforces our human fallenness in a sense. Yeah. And, but th- yet they're the ones who, who have the audacity, if you will, the nerve perhaps to say, well, they're the true they're disciples. The true they're disciples. the true church. They're mm-hmm. the true followers of Jesus. And those of us right. who are in the main line, those of us who are, who are perhaps more progressive, we're not true Christians. Exactly. <laughs> and yet we're, you know, we're the ones who are persevering. We're the yeah. ones who are continuing to follow. We stumble, we get up, we continue they're, to follow They're Jesus. the modern day miracle workers, exactly. right? And, or and the miracle purve- purveyors of miracles yeah, anyway. Exactly. Right? It, it, or even if they denounce miracles, they still have a, a truism that they claim comes from their pulpit. There is which, a very supernatural yeah. approach to faith yeah. on their part. So it's like yeah. pulling up the pulling up the disciples, not realizing it's the humanity, the disciples, and all of these unspoken people mm-hmm. out here that really make up the, the foundation of the true church, Surely. right? Yeah. Um, and I, I think, um, I think Calvin's aware of that, right? Yeah. When he when he talks about it, um, but what an interesting turning things upside down that comes with that. Yeah, well, and one of the things I come away from this with is, you know, all of these people, as we said before, all of these people had obstacles they had to overcome, mm-hmm. whether it was um, ritual laws that forbade contact with someone like the leper or the woman with the hemorrhages, or whether it was, um, you know, uh, cultural boundaries with the Syrophoenician woman mm-hmm. and her daughter, or, or whether it was just the fact of blindness on the part of Bartimaeus and the crowd, the crowd who were probably, if, if it weren't, if, if, if the people who, who were rebuking Bartimaeus weren't from the 12, at least there were people who were following Jesus. 
Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> and then, but again, and they're rebuking Bartimaeus, well, who becomes were, the example. They were for part faith. of the righteous, right? Oh, we <laughs> want to be associated with the disciples, and and so there's this. But we got to keep this guy who's who's on the boundaries, on the margins of society. Exactly. He's not really. He doesn't really have a a um, a, um, a a legitimate place exactly. amongst us. So we have to. And he having him among us makes us feel uncomfortable and and sort of calls into question our status quo and our self righteousness. Exactly. So we're going to keep him away. But he becomes the exemplar for true faith. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> and it's, yeah. It's Talk very, about the first becoming last and the last becoming first. Uh, ex- exactly. Well, one of the things, you know, we're thinking about this, I at least like in theory, the structure of the, of the Presbyterian church where, you know, you have all these different people that are ordained with mm-hmm. the same, you know, your deacons, mm-hmm. your elders, your pastors, all with the same questions. Mm-hmm. Um, there's not this hierarchy that you right. would see. I found it to be challenging sometimes though, because sometimes people assume, well, you're the pastor. So right. you, you have to do everything right. you have to, or and, you're the boss. You have to make the decision. Right. Right. We see that too. So it's kind of an interesting space, but if it works right, you have, Many, many, in its structurally, you have people really responding to God's call in their lives. And uh, it's pretty awesome if it, if and, it works and, right. And you're right. You're right. It, it is beautiful if it works right. It, I think it, the sad thing is. It doesn't that, work right? <laughs> well, Sometimes. the sad thing is that, I mean, people are people. Yes. And and the people in our churches are just as prone to yes. the fears and, the, oh, and yes. the feelings of insecurity as people in other churches Absolutely. about this postmodern era and how all the things right. that they had put their security in are kind of vanishing. Well, it, absolutely. So yeah. they tend to fall in those same those categories. External props that they were relying on for their own sense of security. Yeah. There. I like to remind my kids, I work with confirmation kids, that, um, you know, all all these people who, who um, proclaim Christ as Lord and Savior are brothers and sisters to us. Mm-hmm. And they are. Re- they are, and, truly. And reminding them that that may not, that sentiment may not come both ways. Right. But that they is may how not they, recognize yeah, that we are. But, but they need yeah. to recognize others, yes. and um, that's how we're going to heal the yes, church. Yes, indeed. Yeah. Yes, indeed. Yeah. Well, I think it's I think it's fascinating, you know, that this this little passage that's that can be so easily overlooked has so much fruitful for thought and for mm-hmm. uh, reflection, you know, about what it means to follow Jesus. Yeah, I agree. Thanks, I Christy. Agree. Thank you. That's our podcast for today. If you heard something that was helpful to you, please subscribe to our podcast and tell your friends about us. It's our hope and prayer that our time together might bear fruit in your ministry as you build up the body of Christ. We hope you'll tune in next week. And in the meantime, let's keep serving each other as we together listen listen for for the the word. word.